0: People today, if you talk to them, they still dread getting older. You know, I don't think anybody, they start at age 30 and they every, they mourn their birthdays, mourn, oh my god, I'm 30, you know, oh my god, I'm forty. You know, they're mourning every decade.
1: Hello again and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging Podcast. I'm Peter Bose. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. <laughs> Now, ageing is often portrayed in a negative light. Ill health, loneliness, financial problems, the loss of loved ones, all valid issues. But why is it that numerous studies have shown that people in their 60s and beyond often say they're happier than they've ever been? My guest today from her home, just outside the US city of Boston, is Catherine Esty, a practising psychologist and author of 80-somethings, A Practical Guide to Letting Go, Aging Well and Finding Unexpected Happiness, a book which really challenges the stereotypes about the lives of older people. Catherine, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast.
0: Well, thank you very much, Peter. I am absolutely delighted to be here and getting to talk about uh, happiness and other subjects about uh, aging today.
1: Excellent. And I'm delighted to talk to you as well. You're in your what mid-80s right now. Well,
0: not quite mid. I'm uh, over mid. I'm 87 years old. And uh, so I guess that's I think that's late. I don't know. It's still maybe it's mid 80s. We'll call it mid 80s.
1: Well, I think the whole point of this is it doesn't really matter. And you have clearly a, a lifetime of wisdom to share. And I, I'm curious to start with your book's subtitle, A Practical Guide to Letting Go.
0: What are you letting go of? Well, I think that's the part that most people don't get. So I'm, it's a really good question, because I think what we have to let go of is the kind of uh Bit by bit, as we age, uh, you have to let go of something like you have to let go of uh, running. You you know, your knees can't run or you have to let go of uh, you can't don't really want to go to Europe any longer. Uh, You want you. Can't really entertain uh, your twenty-five family people and make homemade pies for them all. That you gradually get a series of losses, small and large, and that you have to let go of them and kind of leave them behind. You have to grieve them. You have to pay attention to them. You can't. Some people just uh, stoically keep doing things, and they but then they you know fall down. They can't really do it. So it's kind of noticing. What you can do, uh, what you can't do, and pay attention to what you can do, and and not getting a. a, a feeling you know kind of making your peace with them so that's the letting go and it's a hard work and it's not just a one time only.
1: So it's a very practical piece of advice it's letting go as you've beautifully explained of those things that it just isn't realistic anymore to do.
0: Right and they happen over time and suddenly you realise that you know I went to a Zumba class today I don't know if you that know that it's a very active dance and um, I left after 40 minutes I could have stayed but I was tired you know and uh, so I feel oh that's 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 wise you know and uh, so I sort of patted myself on the back.
1: I was going to say at 40 minutes of that class you must have left feeling pretty good.
0: I did I did.
1: Let's delve into all of that then in a little bit more detail but first of all Let's just go back a, a few decades and, and talk about your life and really how you got to this point. Let's talk about your career and, uh, I suppose, what evolved in your mind in terms of your interest in this area of longevity.
0: Yes, well, my parents did not have longevity. I mean, they weren't didn't have early deaths, but they might, were both gone by the. My mother died at seventy six, and my father at seventy two. So, but my life, uh I was one of those people of the generation that grew up. I didn't have much of a uh, focus on career or work. But then when I graduated from college and started teaching, I thought, oh, well, this is really fun working. And so um I edged into abandoning teaching and deciding I really wanted to be something that was uh somehow more, I got interested in people in the classroom and I wanted to know more. And they all started telling me their stories and I wanted to help them. And then I realized I didn't have training. So I went to a uh, social work school and became a, a, a psychotherapist. And then uh, after doing psychotherapy for a while, some women, uh, I went back and got my PhD in social psychology because I came became interested in you know the societal issues as well as individual issues, and I wanted to really change organizations. I've been uh, trying to change things my whole life uh, and make them better. So, with the PhD in hand, I uh, worked in a consulting firm. And then, after a couple of years, two women and I started our own firm where I, I was the principal, one of the principal managers, one of the three of us, for 20 years. And then I retired from that, went back to psychotherapy. But I, at this point, I'm now around 70. I started, I had written books along the way. I wrote When I was in my thirties, I wrote a book about gypsies. When I was in my uh, consulting time, I wrote a book with some other folks on diversity. I wrote a, uh, I traveled with my uh, consulting to Bangladesh and met a guy I really admired who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007, Mohammed Yunus. I wrote a book about him. And then as I, started, uh, aging myself when I was 80, I had a real aha moment. I was t- going along, doing everything, saying yes to a lot of things, writing books, having a, you know, a private practice. But one day I was, went on a, a small hike with my, uh, some of my family and it, this mountain I had cl- climbed, it was like a, an hour and a half hike up. It, I've done for years. I just couldn't do it. And, uh, I I was with a lot of my grandkids and a couple of my sons. And I just said, I can't go up with the last uh, half hour. I just, uh, I had fallen once and got really uh, out of breath. So I sat on a stump and it was like my aha moment. I said, I I guess I'm getting old. And it was, I kind of uh, had to make my peace with it. And I was in a funk because I hadn't made my peace with it. So. At one point I decided well somebody must know how to do live as your 80s so I thought well I, as a social worker I know how to interview people so I started interviewing people uh, first in my retirement community then all over the country and where uh, and finding out what is it like really to be in your 80s and I only interviewed people in their 80s because nobody had written about that they'd lumped people sixty five to a hundred all together in one big category called old or older and so I found out a lot of interesting things the the first was my biggest finding was and you sort of hinted at it in your introduction was that most people the great big majority of people in their 80s are find themselves happy and they never looked for thought they'd ever be happy so it's unexpected happiness most of them didn't Many of them didn't think they'd get there to eighty. You know, the uh, their parents died, or they they never thought, and then they never thought they'd be enjoying their life. And of course, there are people. I'm not talking to people in poverty. There's, you know, there are people. It's it's not easy to be old and poor. But right. so most of the people I did, they, some of them were in nursing homes, and some of them, and some of them were not happy. I mean, I tried not to just be blinding my eyes to the real realities of the world. But my people, um, you know, I asked every one of them on a scale of one to 10, uh, how happy do you feel 10 being very, very happy and one miserable? And most everybody, there were just about five or six that were below a a seven, you know, And most of the people were eights, nines and tens. And that, the science bears that out, which when I got doing research that people, it turns out that when you're in your eighties, you're happier than people in the seventies. And interestingly enough. The people in their 70s are happ- happier than the people in their 60s. They now call it a U-shaped, uh, the, because people in the, their youngness are happy. But if you get to 30 and you're miserable, you're too busy, and, and then it doesn't get better till you start getting better till about the, yeah. the 50s.
1: That That's really interesting. I'm just... Um... I'm really interested, you say you had that aha moment at the age of 80. When you were younger, when you were much younger, what was your attitude towards growing old? Were you the typical kind of person who thought, almost thought, I'm going to live forever, I can do everything and I don't really need to think about what it's going to be like when I'm 60, 70, 80 or even 90 years old? Did you just have that sort of gusto about life that uh, getting really old didn't occur to you? And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment.
0: Well, it did occur to me because I had had some grandparents and I did have a lot of um, good energy myself. But what I saw old uh, old age was like, I didn't want to get old at all because I had uh, two grandparents that uh, I had a grandfather that spent 10 years in bed with a stroke, which they would never do now. And a grandmother who broke her hip and she also spent... uh, Years in bed. And, um, then one grandparent was dead. I never saw him. So that didn't look, never, he never made it. And then I had one grandmother that it was, looked like a pretty good life, but, uh, you know, she had a rose garden and she drove a car around and went to Florida and she was, uh, looked like, but basically I was like the people that thought I don't want to get there ever. Um, so I wasn't, uh, it didn't look like, you know, some people, you know are very fond of their old people and they just you know have really and I so I never was really close to any and I certainly dreaded it along with everybody else.
1: So what you've just beautifully described really is the difference between health span and lifespan and health span we talk about it a lot on this podcast aspiring to get to a, a great age but maintain our physical health, our mental health and to be able to assimilate with society to enjoy life as opposed to lifespan which is just essentially being alive and the heart beating. But as you've just described, it could be ill health for a decade or the final few years of life.
0: Right. And now, of course, I'm uh, very invested in, because as I came to... Do this work on interviewing people. I interviewed uh, 128 people for my book, and as I was interviewing it, first of all, my funk went away because I uh, had a purpose. Now I was like, I invested in this research project, and then I was so excited by the kind of what I was seeing people doing and the kind of lives they were leading and doing wonderful things. uh, You know, like uh, that, all kinds of things, and suddenly I had to. Do a gradual revision of my thoughts. I saw, and I, and the more I, people I talked to, the more possibilities I saw for myself. And, you know, I quickly got over my, um, uh, sort of depressed mood about aging and got on to feeling that I had something really important that I was discovering. And it seemed to me most people were still clinging to the, all the negative stereotypes about aging and really didn't realize how aging had changed since their grandparents day, and when how it was different, they were still thinking of aging as decline and 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 loss, which is there is some loss and some decline, but there 's so much else going on today for people in their seventies and eighties
1: and I think you 've really hit the nail on the head talking about purpose and, and purpose in living and purpose in life that it can almost now be interested to know if there 's any science to back this that that when you have purpose. It almost, as you've, I think you've just described this, it makes any other problems go away, whether it is a a depression issue, or whether it's almost a physical problem that, yeah, you know, I think we've all experienced this. You might have an ache and pain, and then you get engrossed in something, and all of a sudden the aches and pains disappear.
0: Right. If you're busy with it, you don't even feel them. Especially, I've learned that. I mean, I learned it to an over degree. I'd go to work when I was feeling terrible because I knew that if I once I got there, I'd just be, you know, you know in, in my sickness, whatever bad feeling I had would fly, fly out the door. But for me, uh, you know, I think the how, the place, uh, that where I learned this for sure, this, uh, importance of purpose was started with, uh, Victor Frankl's book, um, My, uh, The Search for Mean, Man's Search for Meaning. He was somebody, um, you may know this story, but he was, uh, in Auschwitz and was, uh, in this, was writing, uh, taking notes and thinking about what he was seeing. And what he learned in that death camp was that it wasn't, the strongest bodies that survived. It wasn't the the hunks. The, uh, it was really, and he saw this, it just it surprised him so much. It was people that had something that they wanted to live for. They had a purpose for l- surviving. They either wanted to uh, be back with their families, their wives, or they wanted to... Uh, build, uh, see their home, or they wanted to uh, write a book, or they wanted to get the story out about Auschwitz. They wanted to get the truth out. Uh, They were concerned about justice. But once they had a purpose, no matter, they were so much more apt to survive this horrible camp than uh, people that didn't really know why, couldn't really say why survive, why they should survive. And so that is kind of a a story that sticks in my mind. To the, and then I've gone on and seen from my own research and from my other people's research how true it is that uh, of the really critical nature of having a purpose.
1: Just going back to those people that you interviewed in their 80s and the, the overwhelming majority of them saying that they were a, a 7, 8 or 9 in terms of their happiness – What were their reasons? Did they explain to you what the main things in their lives were that were giving them happiness?
0: Well, I think it was they would describe their purpose. I found, for instance, you know, one woman told me how it was her grandchildren that gave her a focus in her life. And she had uh, something like, uh, I think she had six grandchildren, and she wanted to be part of their lives. And she said it was very important for her. She wanted them to... uh, took a lot of uh, interest in their growth and development, but also in their continuation as a family. And she knew if she didn't bring them all together, they would, they would, they were spread out all over the country. So that became her um, avocation of bringing the family together and as well as helping uh, some of the kids that needed help with their uh, education and their, uh, and that, so that was her. Um, other people, you know, uh, I had one person that uh, was uh, painting and they had started uh, watercolors and they had been a a, a professor, but then they, when they uh, turned about 65, they started doing these beautiful watercolors and uh, they would, became, you know, went to painting classes and were in painting groups and showed their work. And it was just a, a focus of trying to express the world that they saw and, um, and the purpose was to to paint it as it was to them some people take their do take their their purpose becomes their physical well-being and they go to fitness and they there's if we see that type all the time of of uh people that go to the exercise and do everything eat you know can, are concerned about their diet and their sleep, and that can become a purpose for some. I think that isn't as motivating, uh, but there's certainly we see it happen to a lot of people. I,
1: I think exercise can be obviously both physically beneficial, but there's a huge mental side of exercise as well and in part it might be the endorphins that are released when you're exercising but in terms of achievement and perhaps seeing a change in your body and and muscular strength is all important as as you're growing older but I know a lot of people my age uh, I'm approaching 60 who might be actually starting serious exercise for the first time and they notice how their physical strength can actually very significantly improve and that improves their mental well-being as well. Right,
0: and then it leaves you energy to do uh, some other things. I mean, and other people and that I interviewed one guy was uh, his life purpose was the uh, union and he continued after he retired from his job just helping the union to organize in his midwestern town and so he was in and, and Many people today, I think, are taking climate change. They realize that the world needs people to really put that cause above and make it their highest priority. So I met a number of people that were uh, working on, uh, very various aspects. They might be helping one organization like the Sierra Club, or they might be working on uh, just raising money for uh, more global issues. And But that is drawing a lot of people, I think.
1: What would you say to people in their, let's say their 40s, their 50s, maybe their, in their early 60s, they're approaching retirement? And I know for a lot of people, retirement is that moment of of dread, In their lives because they're giving up what they've always done and they really can't figure out what's coming next. They're afraid of of being older and infirm and maybe lonely eventually. And I know a lot of people kind of get locked in that almost that dark hole of just the unknown of of what ageing brings. So with your experience, what would you say to those people in that sort of mid-age range?
0: Well, for one thing, I think they should listen to their own intuition. And I know that's what I had to do. Uh, uh, You know, when I turned, uh, well, I all along, when I went to a financial advisor in my 30s, he said to me, when do you think he'll retire? And I said, 85. <laughs> and he laughed. And my husband said, 65. Well, my husband actually uh, uh, retired at 62. And you know, when I retired, it was f- four days ago. I, on Thursday, I ended my psychotherapy practice. It, it, so, it was, so it was a big week for me. This was last week, I actually closed it down. And so i it was like i didn't end my career at, but I think at eighty five I ended it at eighty seven with the formal career, but now I have a writing career as well
1: so when i dis- when I described you at the beginning as a practicing psychotherapist that is, that has just ended but i I guess in many senses you you're always going to be practicing the art of what you've known. I still
0: have a few details to do so i you could say that it's not going to be closing but I do think it's listening to there's so many stereotypes and one of them is that you should retire at 65 or you should retire and I think people have got to find their own pathways and that's what I would encourage them and not so I didn't listen to the that I should retire at 65 uh, nonsense and I think that's what everyone needs to do is take their own uh, listen to their own heart and listen to their own what and I loved uh, of course my private practice was like half time but it was perfect. And I felt I was contributing and it gave purpose to my life. So uh, I would encourage everyone to realize that so many of the stereotypes about older people are just either misinformed or dead wrong. And things like uh, we all grew up with thinking that we were told That if you have a drink, you're going to lose a few brain cells and that we got this image of the brain cells flowing out of us with we had a glass of wine and if we just lived and that we could expect it at 40, everything was downhill from 40 on. And now the modern brain uh, research tells us that the brain can uh, keep growing, we can keep learning. We, we can uh, heal our brains if we, say, are depressed or the brain have a trauma. The brain has got this capacity, this thing called neuroplasticity, where you can heal yourself. So that's one thing. I think people, that's not widely understood how that should impact our well-being. We should know that our brains can last in um, for years. So that's one thing I'd want them to know. I'd want them to know you don't have to. We all know with modern medicine, but we if, when you think about it with the knees and the hips and teeth getting taken care of and cataracts and better hearing aids i think they're just getting hearing aids that work for people they've been a mess for years but with all of that modern medicine can do you know you can look forward to being in your 80s pain free not everybody but most people and pain under control pain free and active lives and um, you know so that it's just a uh, but that the word still isn't out that you know that this quality of having active uh lives pain free with uh pleasure and this unexpected happiness people today if you talk to them they still dread getting older you know i don't think anybody they start at age 30 and they every they mourn their birthdays mourn oh my god i'm 30 you know oh my god i'm 40 you know they're mourning every every decade and not realizing that Life can be so much fun and uh, so wonderful and continue. And it's not just uh, this, you know, they would draw it like up to here to 40, and then down here like that, down. There. That's the way most people see it, rather than that you get here and you can go along and go along for a long time, and then maybe hopefully have a very quick, uh, and then it's over. But
1: that's the goal for a lot of people, isn't it? To keep going, keep going. And then, as you say, go quickly. Go
0: quickly, right.
1: That would be the ideal. How big a. Um problem in society, do you think ageism is? I think ageism exists at all sorts of levels at at different stages in our lives. But especially as we're getting beyond 50, people often refer to the over 50s as if it is a, a group that you don't want to be in, that it is something that happens to you, that it is it is negative And for all of the, the reasons that we've just been talking about, how deep-rooted is ageism in this world that we live in, do you think?
0: Well, I think it's deep-rooted in this country. You know, I think there are other cultures. So I, I think it has been it, that we're particularly uh, unwelcoming to old age and have a culture that's built around the idea that uh, life is for the young and beautiful and you know i think we have ideas you know i've written about sex in the 70s and 80s i think people are sexual their whole lives and but people kind of have made it that it should you know should be sitting very quietly and doing your knitting and taking care of your grandchildren when you're older that but i think um so i think we haven't understood uh things and we have i think we are an ageist society. And I think what you see it in employment, I mean, people often are fearful women that are or men too. it when they're 50. Well, I don't think I can get a new job, they say, because there's so much ageism, people want to hire young people. So it's really tragic. Uh, I do think the whole world should be reorganized. There's a a book called uh, Elderhood. I don't know if you know it by um, this woman. Uh, and it, she suggests that we should really restructure work so people don't work so hard in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, but have them continue into their 60s, 70s, and 80s, to kind of go down, that we should space it out so that everybody has more leisure time and also the the work that we should work uh, our whole lives. And so I think our our culture is... Very pr- problematic. And I see it even in my retirement community here. I have a, a boyfriend that who is on a walker doesn't, and there's no cheers in this retirement community that he can get out of in, in the, in the, you know, in the lobby there, which is just crazy. And, but we have whole towns that aren't set up. I mean, now there are some movements in our, in America, kind of uh, age-friendly uh, communities. So it's starting to happen, but only it's very, uh, we're in the initial stages of recognizing how our towns were built for people that died when they were sick in their 60s. And now we have this whole group of people that with longevity and we have uh, the architects have to change it. The city planners have to change, uh, you know, the, the work, um, HR has to change the work requirements. We still have are structuring our workplace. So there's a lot to do, Peter.
1: What's your boyfriend's name?
0: Peter. Peter his name is Peter just like yours. Oh
1: great. Well, a great choice there. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. One of the problems for for a lot of people is the interaction of the generations and and that can be children and their parents as their parents are getting older you you've talked about grandparents as well and I think a lot of people don't know how to approach that relationship especially when it moves into perhaps a difficult stage. And I think for a lot of younger people, they don't even begin to think about ageing until they see it happening to their parents and grandparents. And I know there are moves in some societies to get more older people and younger people actually living together, whether it's a, a university dormitory or other kinds of accommodation, where the generations are more closely living together. Do you think that will be Beneficial?
0: I think it would because I think uh, and I think uh, but I think what happens uh, I know there's a co- retirement community near me that not mine but they're built right near uh, a college campus and everybody is required to take one of the courses at the college so they they're with young people and they have one you know a, a experience and so I think in other schools most you know my grandkids are getting assignments to go find a, a person that was in World War II and that you know that I think people are making beginnings at that. But I think, uh, you know, it, is, it isn't uh, uh, widespread. And I found when I was writing the book that um, people did not know how to talk across the generations. And often, all too often, the old people would, older people would say to me, you know, my family even will I'll, they'll invite me and I'll greet me with hugs and kisses. But then they'll plunk me in the corner. And after that wonderful, hearty welcome, I'm kind of invisible. And um, so I've, in you know, in my book that I wrote 80 uh, somethings about uh, from all the research I did, I put in conversation starters. Um, And I also put tips for the family because I think people do not know how to and so engage in this intergenerational uh, conversation. And, you know, they need some help, especially the adult children of somebody. When you're 80, your children may be 60, 50, 40. And. They usually avoid all serious topics. Um, they don't know how to bring it up, or they don't. Sometimes, like if they're worried about mom or dad, dad's still driving and he kind of is reckless on the road. They don't know how to bring it up. So, I think uh, we really need um, a lot more aids and uh, kind of helps to help people learn how to talk across this. And my book was meant as a kind of a introduction for. Adult children into what it actually the inner experience of being old is like. What it is that they sometimes don't get, and they're bewildered by their their parents. And somehow, so this is kind of like it's an uncharted territory. And um, so we all need to inform ourselves more what the actual world of old age is like. And and um, so my book is a great start for anyone that. But it also uh, was I wrote it for people in their eighties because some of them are oblivious to all this good news, what I call the good news. Uh,
1: Just in closing, I often ask people, perhaps people that are younger than you, what their plans and aspirations are for the decades ahead and how they see their future. I'm curious, how do you see your future? What are you looking forward to? Are there new projects you want to do?
0: There are, and I just am writing an article for a paper and the Top editor said that I was very promising, which was hysterical to, <laughs> to be promising at uh, at eighty seven. But that's where I'm going. I'm, I, I have been writing blogs, and I want. I'm, I don't think I'll write another book, but who knows? So, I mean, I have. That's one thing I want to do, and I also like the woman that is uh, involved with her grandkids. I am very invested in my own grandkids. Uh, and I have ten of them, so that's a hand a lot of people right there. And I'm very in care to sort of stay close and spend time with them. And um, so that's. But I also I've been writing these blogs at least once a month. And now I'm uh, th- that I won't be having the private practice and the, my clients. Um, I'm hoping that they'll, they'll have even more energy. And also I'm also hoping I've always been very busy. And I'm so I'm hoping I'll learn the art of moving slowly, and kind of uh, being able to say no, and, and just having a little more space in my life. And, uh, and I'm also hoping to learn how to walk a little slower. (laughs) Because I'm always like, people always say, Catherine, you're moving so fast. And uh, so I'm hoping that I'll, I'll learn the art of moving slowly.
1: That's interesting. We did an episode of this podcast a little while ago that talked about the science behind the speed at which you walk. And the evidence is that people that walk faster tend to live longer.
0: Oh, well, that's good. More good news for me. I didn't know yes. that. That's a, so thank you. That's a good piece of news. No, that is hilarious.
1: You are living that life.
0: Yes, I'm doing well on that score. So.
1: Well, you're doing, I think you're doing well on, on many, many scores. Catherine, this has been a, a wonderful conversation, invigorating and very inspiring. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thank
0: you, because I've learned something too. I've enjoyed it. Uh, it's been a lot of fun and, and so uh, interesting.
1: Thank you so much. It really was a huge pleasure. And if you'd like to read Catherine's book, 80-somethings, A Practical Guide to Letting Go, Aging Well and Finding Unexpected Happiness, I'll put the details into the show notes for this episode of the podcast. You'll find them at our website, Livelong and Master Aging, Llamapodcast.com. And if you're feeling invigorated by what Catherine has had to say, you might like to... Take a look at a mightygoodtime.com, the website run by our friend Amy Templey, a past guest on this podcast. A Mighty Good Time is a, a one-stop shop for events and activities for people who are over 50. It's a great resource and it's also a link to our podcast for which we're grateful and well worth a look. Lama is a Healthspan Media production. We'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, do take care and thank you very much for listening.